And greetings, everyone. Dr. Miles Neal here from the island of Bali on the Wisdom Keeper podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined by my mentor and friend, Lynn Bell, who is a world-renowned master astrologer of over 40 years. She specializes in psychological and spiritual perspectives of astrology with a specific interest in family systems and also mythological and archetypal themes. She lectures and offers workshops globally, including online at Astrology University, and her books include Planetary Threads and Cycles of Life. Lynn Bell, thank you so much for joining me. And of course, I have to just be very transparent that Lynn has been guiding me and my family for many, many years. And I have a very personal connection, very fond connection. And in my recent work, uh, Return with Elixir, I referred to her as the Oracle. <laughs> and so I, I'm, I'm particularly grateful to you for all your mentorship and your vision really which has helped me and my family navigate the changing tides and so without you we would be lost in a way because what you do is so precise so helpful in offering a forecast and so i just want to start the podcast by just giving my utmost appreciation gratitude for what it is that you do specifically for me and all the students that i've been uh, had the pleasure of introducing you to in the uh, gradual path forum and so we've been very, very, very looking forward to this podcast and your astute reading of the of the 2024 year ahead. So thank you so much for your time and coming this well, morning from Paris. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome. It's great to wake up with you, and I'm. It's it's a privilege and a, an honor to be able to touch the path of another person, as you know. Uh, and for everyone listening, we all do that at different moments in our lives, opening, opening understanding uh, for each other. Yeah, and you've done that so beautifully and for so many. So it's um, it's something that I think we share perspectives and it's really nice to intersect in an interdisciplinary way. So I hope at some point in the dialogue we can navigate the terrain ahead and from our various disciplines and and maybe form some synergy it's always it's always mutually reinforcing and, and and encouraging let me start as i do with the podcast by offering you a quote for your opening reflections this is from the book return with the elixir and it something it goes something like this it's it's often the times that we have to look back in order to look forward mm. yeah Right. I Well, as you know, I, that's often how I like to work. Uh, many people think of astrology as something um, that's about prediction. But in fact, we know that our own spirals, our own pathways get visited and woken up over and over again. And if we never look at those, uh, they almost become a form of fate and a form of uh, locking us in to narrower possibilities and options. And so when we look back, the idea is to open up and also to find uh, seeds, possibilities, things we might have overlooked in earlier cycles. What you're seeing here is the sun rising as I'm speaking. Uh, so I might turn that light off and we'll just get the sun. There we go. <laughs> So the idea that most people have about astrology is it's predictive in nature, but what I hear you saying and definitely is true as a therapist that 
we spend a lot of time looking back because there we can recognize certain patterns and patterns in themselves become predictive if we don't have a level of conscious awareness about them. So there is some intersection between looking backwards at patterns, but also having the recognition about how to change them. Would That's right. And yes, absolutely. And also being aware of the quality of mo of the moment and what specifically is waking up right now. Like what the work, what, what of that very rich past of all those experiences is suddenly germinating, uh, <laughs> which we may not want it to, uh, but, but, at the same time, it's always an opportunity to suddenly look at something and, oh, this could this could go in another direction. So a lot of astrology is actually being on that threshold and saying, oh, I'm coming to meet this particular aspect of myself, and this will be called out in me. Well, that's beautifully put, and it, it makes me um, maybe this will. We'll touch it now, but it may we may develop it later in the conversation. But what what I really admire about what you do is that you're really astute about the present causes and conditions. Mm. Sometimes in my work as a therapist and as a meditation instructor, there is this limitation, I think, with sort of being willful with with our own presence and our own mm. ana analysis. But what you do is so informative because it opens the field to the fact that there are many causes and conditions arising that we intersect with and mm. you can't just force your way through it even with effort you have to be discerning about the moment and yeah. what the moment what the, what the moment is showing us that's right and and will alone i mean some people listening to this have have strong well developed wills that's not the case of everyone, certainly. And when some aspect of your being has been successful for you, you think it's the solution at every given moment. And of course, unfortunately, we learn that's not always true. <laughs> and, you know, for other people, they have had to learn to wait until they're called, uh, wait until someone says, hey, come on, time to move. Um and so they haven't been used to using will. And then when that's required, they're like, hey, no one's calling me. And those are those are some of the things. I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that, of course. So there's a, much more uh, going on at any given moment. Yes, I can I can I can confess that I'm one of those people that have a lot of will, pride myself in having a lot of will, but this last few years have been so frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> and they it's haven't been a, stopped you. <laughs> it's been the art of letting go and surrendering and and re recognizing how little in control I have sometimes. And so that's been a great teaching. And, you know, I should have spent a lot more time talking with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lynn, you know, I'd, I'd also, there's something in the Tibetan tradition called a namtar, which is when you have a, a great master, it's always nice to get their backstory, because oftentimes they're so humble and sought after for their prowess. And it's not always the case that it's clear how someone gets from point A to point B in their life. And you're developed a great reputation and a repertoire of what you do. I, I wonder if you can give us a little of your own heroine's tale and, and yeah. how major life events that stirred interest. If you, if you knew you had 
soul calling, how you came across astrology? How did it sort of all all unfold? Yeah, well, you know, I started reading the horoscopes in the newspaper. <laughs> so that's what that's my it was probably eleven or twelve or I I uh and I I think I lived in a universe. I, I'm someone who didn't see very well as a child. I'm a grande myope. You know, I've had a surgery to my eyes, so now I see comparatively clearly on that level. And, you know, we talk about what it's like not to see, that not to see, to start life in that sort of in a way with a disadvantage, right? Uh, and having to learn, I think very early, and this is true for a lot of people who couldn't see when they were young, very early, um, having to kind of piece the world together in some sort of alternative way, even though you don't know you're doing that, right? And having a first opening of vision when you get classes at age six or seven, something like that. So, so I kind of you know, move through the world um, a little differently than most people. And in some ways, I didn't really recover from that, I suppose. But it's not only that, it's also that I grew up in a world where the expl explanations I heard did not make sense of what I was experiencing. You know, so, it, you know, Midwestern, Chicago, childhood, matter-of-fact explanations, and I was always seeking something in refuge in books, but also answers. And that became much more acute at a certain age. And astrology was, I think, the first thing, just learning people's signs, was the first thing that gave me some clue to human behavior, which really did not make sense to me in the way it was presented to me. So my, my my jaws open, Lynn, because I've known you all these years and I didn't know that backstory. That piece is so um it's a what it's an uncanny metaphor, isn't it? It's almost like you know, certain kind of blindness prompts you to have a deeper kind of vision. Yeah. Well that is the story, you know, the the famous seers in Greek mythology, uh to <laughs> often have that issue of course you know and it's something that comes up with with um people now I was talking uh I have a grandfather also who lost an eye in a mining accident and uh I often th I often think about that that's a, a mythological story of having to you know that I'm carrying you know I'm very interested in those things like how do you how do you move forward when something is missing, let's say. And I could talk about that on other levels, but um, I think that's clear. I yeah. love it. It's, I mean, it's one of my uh, one of my mentors, Robert Thurman, also lost an eye when he was in his mid-20s in a motorcycle accident. And his oh, really? mama, his guru told him, yeah, you, you will lose one eye, but you will gain a thousand others along this path. And he did exactly that, the first Westerner to ever be ordained a monk by the Dalai Lama and one of the most profound teachers of Tibetan Buddhism to the West. So what an, <laughs> what an incredible uh, metaphor and what, a, I mean, so, but also you go a little further and tell us like, even when you're 12, I believe you said you were 12, mm. why, why astrology? Because there would have been so many ways to open your third eye, let's say, 
why astrology? Why, you know, why the stars? Any idea? Well, I sometimes I think um, I remember that when when I was when I got seeing AIDS, you know, my first classes, I had never seen all the details on trees or leaves or I hadn't really seen the stars, I suppose. So, and I remember showing other little children, I'd say, look at the moon, look at the stars, right? So, like, I suppose that for me, that idea of having learned to see really close up and then being able to see details, it actually was a, a, it was a moment of great wonder in my life. And I'm sure other people listening have had this experience as well uh, to some degree. But um, if you, um, and I had another thing happen, which was when, when I had cataract surgery in 2014 and I had implants, I woke I could, it was the first time I woke up and could actually see things, you know, see the titles of books on the other end of the room without glasses. It was, a, it, and the surgery changed my dominant eye. Um, or it made it it made the other eye the lead eye. So that's that's several experiences of moving moving from a different place, I suppose. So why astrology? I can tell you that story, but really it's the first thing I found that that came in discrete chunks, I suppose. And it made sense when I read the descriptions. You know, I grew up in in a kind of mm, not a very interesting neighborhood in Chicago. You know, there, there was an expressway at the end of the street and a shopping center four blocks away with, you know, not a whole lot of interest. Um, and um, I found an astrology book. So I, I used to spend my, my allowance on horoscope rolls that came out of gumball machines. Who knows why? I like, these are mysteries to me. Right. Yeah, we would... We'd but probably, I, we'd probably chalk it up to some past life karmic. We could, because, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's so young. And then, you know, something like that comes your way. It's not by circumstance. It, it has mm. purpose or, or meaning. And it, it took a long time also. Uh, I wasn't, I certainly didn't intend to become an astrologer. It's just, I had a very hungry mind, Miles, you know, uh, and like, it gave me an explanation on another level, right? And, and I would say it was very rational uh, on one level and looking for story and myth and um, reading things that would open up my experience that felt felt rather close to me, right? And would there be any, uh, you've written a book on, sort of family constellation or pattern and transgenerational inheritance. I mean, obviously, if you write a book, it's informed somewhat by personal experiences. Does it fit yeah. here in, in any way? Any observations, nuggets, personal stories about your family dynamic and how it may have prompted you for this quest? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a long story. We'd only be talking about that, I think. <laughs> Uh, but but yes, I wouldn't say that uh, that I had um, uh, um, a secure model. Let's say that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was. 
something that was destabilizing as well. So there's that outward, looking outward was really important to find a solution. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure people listening can relate. You know, you have the vision challenge, let's call it, or obstacle. You obviously have something deeper in the family that we could go down a rabbit hole with. Mm. But people listening are going to identify with this 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 theme of personal and cultural challenge. And you know, these interviews are really about helping encourage people that within their environment there are solutions, pathways, ways of working with obstacles that actually, in the long run, looking back. They were monumental doorways into growth. Absolutely. So I think, you know, if you have any antidote, please share. Uh, Antidote, I don't know. But uh, yesterday, I was actually, um, uh, Sunday, I was teaching a workshop on the astrology of brothers and sisters. And this whole idea of the work of um, justice and injustice how we're, we're given not the same things. Obviously, we don't have absolutely the same thing, but in many, many ways, similar things, but it never feels that way. And how you use another person as a mirror uh, and what, what gets projected or carried, what you choose to offer to the other in these really early experiences. And I think everything... I experienced made me really interested in these very early, very vulnerable choices and um, how in the way our being unfurls and how very early we're asked to be kind or we choose not to be kind or we choose to be brave or not um, and how we can revisit those things and understand them in another way so that they have a totally different meaning that they're freed or released later yeah the the word that came to mind was rewritten yeah rewritten Uh, something something about the neuroscience right now of memory and traumatic memory in particular where most people feel that they're stuck with this traumatic imprint this this thing happened to me and since it happened in the past and it can never be undone, but the the neuroscience is really clear on this, that memory is a constellation of filtered experiences. Maybe you can't undo the event, but certainly what we carry as trauma is a set of interpretations and emotions and associations. And all of those are layered and not static. They can be revised. They can be unlearned. They can be mythologized and they can be informed with current events and they can be imbued with more compassion now and and with each iteration they can grow into a different kind of story and i'm I'm sure in your work Mm. that bears true and maybe you would articulate it slightly different but it may amount to the same kind of thing Uh, no that's beautifully articulated i love that and um it it made me think of a of a period where i learned hypnosis and how powerful that was because it, 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 you know, watching a video of Milton Erickson, who actually, you know, is dealing with someone with a very, very deep trauma and then in, and then suggests an alternative version of, of, uh, of events to give someone a project, a 
a bridge over something unbearable, not to deny or to erase, but to give a different pathway through. And very often when we're stuck in a story, we don't, we can't find any alternatives. It's just that circle of repetition and refiring of the same emotion. And I think one of the ways astrology works it, with its cycles that come back is it's telling you, here's another opportunity, here's a new opportunity to move this one in a different direction. We're reactivating this now and you can see it from a completely different place. Yeah, now now a lot of the threads are already being woven. So so the first one was why do we look back in order to go forward? So here you're saying planetary cycles give us opportunity. So if we're good students of our historical patterning, we will be granted another chance. Right. And whether we call it redemption or what you might call it. So Reactivation. <laughs> Um, but you're also now heading into the territory of, of astrology. And one thing I've always wanted to ask you is because you know, your particular approach to psychology is very psychological, which I, of course, I really resonate with. Um, is there any backstory to how those two disciplines intersect for you that really inform your work? Uh, is there a backstory? Wow. Mm. I, you know, I feel, um, well, I did a, a, a long analysis, so that's, that's a pack, a long analysis, long enough, um, <laughs> which I always thought was absolutely necessary, <laughs> who knows, uh, and, and, and actually, I remember I had a friend um, in, my, in my 30s who said, Lynn, you're the best advertisement for analysis I've ever met. <laughs> I don't know if that 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 gives is that you a some... compliment. Is <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not so sure, <laughs> uh, but 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 a, a kind of um, and I and and I actually was thinking about I was actually thinking about um, uh, you know how we have adaptations. And I was thinking about a moment recently for, for no reason whatsoever of a particular dream I had that was uh, a healing dream. And how, you know, when we work with someone, whether they're a therapist or a guide or a, a spiritual director, etc., they wake up something that our inner resources respond to. And something emerges, something is, um, it's, it's not them doing it, obviously, we know that, it's, it's the listener uh, who is responding and allows something to emerge that brings understanding. And then the universe comes to meet you, that's the other part of this, because otherwise we're just talking about therapy, but I think what the astrology does is say, when will the universe come and meet you? And in what way? Wow. Okay. Let's let's workshop this a little bit. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm gonna use. Do you like and do you use soul for the yes. personal for the? You called it. Did you just call it listener? Did I hear that yeah. correctly? I think no? so. Mm -hmm. Something very deep and ancient and enduring 
life after life, whether you call it a soul or the listener or the witness. I was But going to then... use soul earlier, and then I thought, oh, Buddhism, maybe I shouldn't use soul. <laughs> Not for me. I mean, I think there's a great misunderstanding in Buddhism that there's teachings that there are is no soul. And it's it's not true. It's what the Buddha was directly referencing when he said Anatman. It was no fixed soul. In other words, the soul is always growing. You can't find an internal essence that's unchanging that isn't directly impacted by events and either digressing or devolving or evolving. Once you once you see that, then you're You're open and available to use a word like soul. I mean, Buddhist like a word like mind or consciousness, but soul is fine. And I think, you, but to come back to what you were saying, you're you're so the the deep witness inside of us has an open invitation to the universe, is what you said, and I'd love to hear more. Well, we're we're moving. You know, we're clearly not separate. <laughs> um, from what's going on outside. I mean, look at how most of us feel at the beginning of this this year about external events. Uh, there are many external events that can come in and shatter peace, uh, harmony, you know, just what's happening in the world, whether it's environmental or whether it's uh, wars in different parts of the world, whether it's a kind of hatred rising up because you're a particular skin color or a particular religion or ethnicity or because of some historical misfortune. Um, so we can, it, it, it's, we're constantly, and then it's, there is clearly a, a movement to harness those negative emotions um, to benefit certain individuals, or certain ideologies, you could say. Mm -hmm. And so maintaining some form of clarity in a universe like this, we don't always have those very powerful forces swirling around, creating confusion and disinformation. Mm -hmm. uh, so our, so what what we're all called to collectively is different right now than it might have been at another moment in time. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into the forecast soon, mm -hmm. but let's let's let me propose a few questions from the skeptic sure. and from the people in the audience that may, unlike your audience who probably die hardies and don't need much convincing. Although I do think since the 2020 conjunction, a lot more people have grown interested in astrology and more receptive. I think they're still you're still dealing with a largely predominant scientifically reduction-minded paradigm in which astrology may come under some scrutiny. And so I'd just like to invite you into helping us understand the mechanisms by which astrology work in your estimation. So that, you know, it could help warm up someone to the idea of how it works and how it could be beneficial for them. In particular, I like the way that Rick Tarnas discusses, discusses it this way, how the psyche, the individual soul and the cosmos, the cycles of time or the planetary dance, if you call it that, 
how do they interact? How do they meet and how do they interact? Well, we're, I mean, we're part of the whole world, which is moving as the planets move, as the cycles move. Um, her mistress, Megestus, said, of course, as above, so below. Uh, and that there's been this attempt to find some clue, again, sort of like me looking for my horoscope roles, but to find some clue in the movements of the sun and moon, in the cycles of the eclipses, as to how time unfolds and how fortune changes, right? How the mo we all recognize when the quality of a moment has changed. Uh, I mean, some of us think, oh, it'll come back, it'll come back. And sometimes it does, of course. But you, you, you say, oh, that was an amazing moment. And I think embedded in this, you know, you, I always think you could take, um, if you could, if you could take a core of the entire universe, everything would be connected. So this sense of movement of the planets, this sense of the rhythming of our days and nights by the moon uh, and the sun by the cycles of day and light, that's the first one. But then the larger 20-year cycles of um, very bright stars, not always in the same place in the sky, but coming together and correlating them with change. I suppose it's been going on for thousands of years. So I'm not giving you the answer Rick Tarnas would give you this very large-minded cosmic answer. It's in a way, there's a very long history of observation of the connection between the sky and the earth. And we've um, looked at the stories that have been placed in the sky and correlated them to events. And so you could think it's all a mythology. It's all a cultural mythology that's passed through multiple cultures over time. And that is true. Um, psychology didn't inform astrology in the same way. And even mythology, because it's really the work of Liz Green in the, in the 70s, who brought mythology full on back into astrology, uh, was there a little bit. You know, people would say, oh, Venus is the goddess of love, but that's it. They wouldn't then tell the stories or move through. So I suppose that in the last 50 years, you could say, this reclaiming of our stories, and now in the new generation, I think people are looking to reclaim other stories about the sky and other ways of seeing the planets that are less um, Eurocentric, I suppose. Yeah, it's fascinating because uh, I guess I guess there would well, there would be some astrologers that are much more materialistic in their interpretation that there's actually some sort of an electromagnetic pull or charge or something like that. There's actually something physical there. But then on the other side, maybe that's what you subscribe to. And certainly Rick Tarnas, we're talking about story mythology something much more right brain mm -hmm. something much more interpretive mm -hmm. uh, and so if we're going to sort of agree that the planets mm -hmm. have a particular narrative as they move and they have particular mm -hmm. meaning invested in them 
I guess the skeptic would say, well, yes, you've put the meaning there. And so how does it, how does it go beyond this kind of closed loop that it's only what you see or it's, it's only what you're, what you, what you write? Well, that, you know, one, one of the things that's going on right now, Miles, I mean, if we're going to look at the scientific model, is that uh, the scientific model is so allergic to astrology that it's almost like scientists couldn't even study it, right? So I remember maybe in the, I want to say maybe in the late 80s, I went to a conference in England and there was a guy named Percy Seymour and he was a, a scientist, he was an astrophysicist who'd been studying the sun his whole life. And he only started really coming out about astrology when he retired. Uh, uh, but he his theory was that the, the whole planetary system is in constant communication with the sun, right? And that as, you know, we know the sun has an 11-year cycle of sunspots, and we're actually in the peak, uh, we're heading into a peak in 2025 of the current cycle, and we're actually constantly being bombarded with electromagnetic energy. And to imagine that the planets have nothing to do with that, that somehow the solar system isn't a unity, um, is probably absurd. It, it would probably be an absurdity of separatist thinking. And one of the things when you when you plot these, um, the sunspot cycles are independent, of, you know, they're not clearly related to planetary cycles, but they're not totally unrelated either. Let's just say that. Um, there's an astrologer who did these studies of how when more planets gather in the same side of the sun, more extreme events happen. So mm -hmm. if you were, if all the outer planets are kind of uh, at north, let's say, and in their cycles, they're all together, they actually affect the electromagnetic, the, the, the magnetosphere, you could call it, or the heliosphere. And that mm. does affect us. So there could be a mm. biophysical relationship for what we're talking about as well. Okay, good. That's, that was a wonderful. So you're not splitting the dichotomy and you think it's possible that actually both actually are synergistic, that there is something physical to it, uh, electromagnetic as it may be. And there's something metaphoric and and interpretive, and that these these both can can be synergistic, right? Yeah. Well, and we know that the whole Earth responds differently. You know, if if uh, right now, you know, you see people posting wonderful pictures of the Northern Lights, you mm -hmm. know, the or you know, incredible green light um, shooting through the sky, and it's very. And this is because we're in a period of heightened activity so everyone yeah. sees it and says something is going on here we don't know what um it's mm. just a pretty picture but um it probably isn't just a pretty picture uh, and people people get much more reactive i think it's almost if we were in a room charged where there were mm, man magnetic currents being uh, sped through we know even in medicine we can use very small charges and particles and they change the tissue of the body so why would that not be happening on a larger level even if we don't have any kind of precise understanding of the mechanism mm. beautiful
let me let me ask you because it's in it's in my book and it it opened a door that I I I respect you because you spent so much time in this world and for me I just dipped my toe in. Mm. You know, after the uh, Maurice Fernandez's article on the conjunction, I started looking at the great year. Mm -hmm. And the great year helped me understand the transition that we're amidst between the Piscean and the Aquarian. Mm. And I wonder if you could provide maybe a synopsis for for a, a, a sort of a beginning listener to what that suggests. Right. Well, actually, I'm going to be um, teaching at Omega in in uh, June with Maurice and uh, Rick Levine and um, a, a wonderful woman named Linda Tucker who works with the lions in Africa. Uh, and Maurice has called it humanity rising in the Aquarian age. And you know, I've said to Maurice, well, this is a strange title. So I, I just want to have a, because the way we talk about ages is that as we observe the sky, um, the fixed stars move very slowly backwards in terms of the equinoxes and the solstices. And the ancient Greeks knew about this. It wasn't as though, and there's two astrologies that developed. One is in India, uh, which uses the moving zodiac. Um, and so the signs in the Indian astrology are now, right now, 23 degrees apart from Western astrology. And Western astrology kept the signs, the zero degrees, on the pivot of the equinox and the solstice. So zero degrees, no matter what's going on with the fixed stars. And yet, at the same time, as the fixed stars move backwards, the sign uh, that is rising at the moment of the spring equinox, uh, which was Aries when astrology was encoded uh, a couple of thousand years ago, uh, has been Pisces for a very long time, actually. It slipped backwards into Pisces. And very soon, say maybe 150 years, um, it will slip into Aquarius. Now, no one agrees when that will happen because, first of all, constellation boundaries are fictional. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they're mythological, fictional, although they're observed and everybody pays attention even in India, there's about 11 different ideas of when this will happen. Um, so this technical passage into Aquarius is not happening right now, but Pluto's entry into Aquarius this year and the last conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in Aquarius at the end of 2020 make us aware of um, Aquarius. And you could say there's a theory that there's a sub-age that we start to anticipate the complete shift long before it really happens. So that's, um, does that make sense? Yeah, that's wonderful. That's perfectly put. And just enough. And then now we can, you know, now we can, so now you have that model of timing. Now you can introduce the thematic. So how would you define the previous age and how would you characterize the incoming age? Oh, well, there's been a lot of um, reflection on the previous age, which which more or less begins with the Christian era. And just as the 
Piscean age begins. And, you know, Pisces is the fish. Christ was represented by the fish. The whole element of um, uh, the power of that particular model and the way it rose in the world, particularly in the first half of that cycle, uh, where it changed the way the way the world functioned, but it brought a uh, much more empathy, I suppose. Um, I think empathy would have been one of the main gifts of that model, even if the actual structures of the religion failed um, at uh, the political and uh, structures failed at certain times. Um, you could also see the Roman Empire, it's up here, you know, as the apogee of this incredible Aries age of the warrior, of the of the will, right? Where the notion of sacrifice or the notion of putting your attention on another place uh, it became a dominant theme, certainly in the Western world. Uh, so that's one way to look at it. I mean, we would have to, and I don't know enough about that, obviously, enlarge our understanding to include many cultural movements, mm. right? Uh, uh, but for the moment, that's what I... And the the incoming Aquarian age, how would you characterize well, what the energy signature, let's call it, coming in? Well, it is a, it's a model of a new human. And, um, you, you know, what, how do we think of ourselves as humans with both our extraordinary potential in, in the, in the Pisces age, the best a human could be is a mirror of, of, uh, God, right. Or of the divine. Um, and there's a whole notion of what is, and what happens if we use not just individual consciousness, uh, or we don't tune to just one model, one model of the divine as something always greater than the self, but we connect with a multiplicity of consciousness. In other words, we as individuals are actually, I think in, in Buddhism, the power of the, the Sangha, right? We know that uh, the Sangha, the being together, that it multiplies what's possible. Um, and it, it isn't, the, the more conscious people come together, the more things change. Mm -hmm. And that's what Aquarius is going to invite us to do. But there are also shadow versions of Aquarius that we, that because it's Pluto, so there's two phases to this Aquarian age. One is that Jupiter and Saturn began a 20 year cycle and entered air, the air element for the first time in um, a long time, mm -hmm. almost 200 years, 180 years, let's say. And uh, those 20 year cycles now are always in air for every 20 years. And so where the air element has to do with understanding and it has to do with possibility. It's not based on necessarily what's happened before, but on what might happen on some kind of new cosmic information um, that is coming in and connects people in a different way. Mm. 
So in the 60s, when there was a conjunction, the reason we started talking about the age of Aquarius in the 60s is that in on the 4th of February, 1962, there was a conjunction of seven, all seven visible planets in Aquarius. Right. <clears throat> and, um, and so people started talking about that. Yeah, I'm I'm sitting here as an observer of, of reality. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to put on astrological lens, hopefully it's going to enable me for to me to make a better story or to make sense or to sense make what I see going on. Yeah. So for example, the structural breakdown, I mean, I think there is a segment of population that thought that we would enter into the pandemic and then we would sort of make our way back. And that's not true. We're never going back to that world. It was cataclysmic in a way. Yeah. The world has forever changed in, yes. in a way since that time. And I see enormous civil unrest right around the world. And I see things like a complete erosion of trust in governments. And I see the championing of minority and marginalized people's movements from north to south to east to west. And I see the influx of new ideas that are based on at least one thematic that I'm seeing that unites a lot of this is the thematic of decentralization, hmm. whether it be in the business world, whether it be blockchain and Bitcoin, where it be new models for small communal local living there's an erosion of trust in the sort of organized pyramid scheme whether mm -hmm. that be right or left blue or red you know mm -hmm. and that and that seems to me to be calling in for new ideas and also people people finding that their own inherent awareness consciousness and sense of empowerment does matter in groups and linkages well, I, I don't know if you know, Miles, but at the moment, um, the farmers in France have driven their tractors and blocked all the roads coming into Paris, uh, or the major roads anyway, all the motorways, so that the only way you can drive in and out of the city is through the little, you can imagine the chaos. Yeah. Um, and there is that notion of we're taking things into our own hands because we need to be heard. Um. And of course, that happened in their modeling after New Delhi last year, you know, which is uh, where the farmers in the Netherlands. Capital. There's a big movement in the Netherlands of something similar. Yeah, yeah the and Netherlands. something about reclaiming the land. Also, the land seems to be a return to the land, a respect for the land, a local growing, and and that that now symbolizes a currency of power in some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's part of Uranus and Taurus. That's a big uh, subject. I mean, one of one of the things that's happening now is when you talk about the disintegration. I mean, you know, of course, and we've already talked about it in the past, is that the, the conjunction in 2020, the Saturn-Pluto conjunction, which is a major um, uh, which changes the structure of our world. It transforms it completely. And sometimes it happens through things like World War I, which also was the time of a Saturn-Pluto conjunction. And sometimes it happens because Reagan and Thatcher come to power, which is what they 
what happened in the one before. And we can see the world changed at that moment too. Um, people are mm -hmm. talking about it more and more. Uh, uh, certainly in terms of the, the way justice moves through society and uh, the way the fruits of labor are distributed, you could say. So. Um, but what happens now is with Aquarius, what happens now is the Saturn-Pluto in 2020 and this, this whole sense that everything stopped, like this major punctuation stop. And then when things started moving again, what we're seeing is that nothing feels the same, like all the boundaries have changed. And we're in um, Saturn and Pisces, which has to do with the dissolving of the rules, the dissolving of memory, the dissolving of our reality in many ways. And, and one of the most disconcerting things is both Saturn and Neptune are in Pisces. Neptune's been in Pisces for 12 years. Uh, uh, it will stay for uh, maybe for 14 and all. But, you know, we've noticed that the new technology has enabled reality, history, truth, all to be kind of modulated. Um, and, you know, pe people don't have books so much anymore. They look for their answers on the internet and who knows what answers you're gonna find that you think are the real answers, but that have been a hallucination of AI. You know, like, I mean, I, I mean there, there are stories about that and clearly this that's just the very beginning of things. So we're actually starting to touch the reality we spend so much time is, is actually changing us, changing our perception, changing the way we see the world. You can imagine that, that in many small towns all over the world, people used to get their news from the local newspaper and it would be kind of limited to what was going on near you. And that almost has disappeared. And now everybody's really concerned with things that actually don't don't affect their day-to-day -day life and so when, when you talk about being present um we've in some ways our attention uh, it's wonderful because our attention has been able to encompass so much more but it's also been hijacked yes. from our presence in the moment lynn on this theme i i'm sometimes I look, I mean, I'm just like anyone else. I get discouraged and hopeless when I look at the broader picture, brushstrokes of reality. Mm -hmm. I get impacted by the deluge of information and the swirl of misinformation, not knowing who's saying what, which, mm -hmm. where's true and what's not. I mean, is, does the vax work? Does it not? Does the mask work? Does it not? It's, it's, you know, and then, so one of the themes that I've, I started to really like is to start to look at reality as the mess that we're in is calling out of us some new principle that we need. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you say more about that? Well, you know, the, the whole idea of change when you could say that Pisces as an archetype in the, in, of the 12 zodiacal archetypes is the one where everything kind of, dissolves and melts and returns to some sort of original unity of 
called chaos <laughs> or chaos, really. and right now it feels like chaos. But in fact, within the chaos is also the possibility of extraordinary creativity, like things are swimming up to meet us if we're listening, if we're paying attention. Um, they're swimming up from very far away, and they may, they may be things that human beings were involved with 3,000 years ago, or maybe 10 years ago, or uh, at another time, or maybe they've been possibilities that have never been touched before. Mm -hmm. um, but they're coming, and they're calling us. And if you're listening deeply enough, they're, the, the visionaries among us start to get a sense of what's calling us. And I think what's very difficult is that the... Mm, the fear mm -hmm. that we feel when things dissolve mean yeah. that we only interpret, we only see the negative potential and not the new potential that's starting to come closer to the surface. Yeah, if I may just qualify or characterize what we're talking about with a particular sort of specific, specific example, mm. Across the world, there's deeper political polarization. That the left, the left has gone outrageously far left in its own way, and the right, as a rebound into its own kind of nationalistic extremism. Mm -hmm. And around about the time that George Floyd was murdered, I felt like that division just, like a like two a parting of a sea, it just grew into its, mm -hmm. just just you couldn't sit down with somebody with a different political orientation and have a conversation anymore. The, the, the days of sitting with somebody who was different were over, but yeah. in terms of this calling in, I've been, so what I, what I, what I'm suggesting is that the, for example, the politics can hook us into greater division, but then what the universe, if I may borrow from you, the universe is calling us is, how do you resolve differences, actually? Not to get stirred into deeper division, but actually it's a call for finding more of the middle again because we've lost the middle. And why well, is it that the extreme few on each side get to hijack the conversation and the narrative? And so then it, for me, it comes down to the personal choice of staying in the right energy and of cultivating decency and of cultivating integrity and of cultivating a willingness to at least just simply respectfully disagree, but mm -hmm. staying connected. That's that's hopefully kind of a, a goal that may be possible if we can work with what's being called in right now. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And one of the things, um, well, um, one of the things I'm just mindful of the time, you know, uh, one of the things that's coming up this year is that right now we have Jupiter in Taurus and, um, and we have since last May or so. Uh, and uh, Taurus, I think everyone has become very aware of our need to become conscious of the earth, let's say. And Uranus, the planet of sudden revolutionary change is also in Taurus and they're going to meet in April. And this is like a, this is an acceleration or a shock, or like a, like talk about an, a, 
an upping of the electrical voltage uh, on the planet. And sometimes that conjunction corresponds to moments of incredible breakthrough, like um, there was an exact Jupiter-Uranus conjunction when the Apollo mission landed on the moon. Of course, now there are people who believe that never happened mm. uh, as well, which is in and of itself really um, symptomatic of, uh, because that moment with all the images we have of the earth from space, with all the, with the whole, a sense of changed consciousness um, yes. that happened in the 60s, where we we could see ourselves in a new way, um, people are saying that doesn't exist. Yeah, it never happened. It was, and it was the earth contrived. Is flat. It was it was fabricated. And the earth is flat. Yes, yes. Because that goes with it. So you have this this narrowing the breakthroughs we've had. People are trying to. It's almost like there's an attempt to 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 cast doubt on everything so that a whole new truth or new reality can be put into place or an old reality in some places, a very old uh, think. I, I don't think that can possibly happen, but we know that the way change happens. Um, so it's really important that people understand the power they have when they come together. Uh, Pluto and Aquarius, the last time it went into Aquarius was uh, 1777. So during the American Revolutionary War and during the French Revolution, um, it stayed until 1799, mm -hmm. um, there were these very important, very complex collective uprisings. Um, and again, we're talking about a 20-year process. We're not talking about something that happens in five minutes. Uh, but there is this idea. So we laud this idea of the creation, basically getting rid of the idea of the king and creating a new model uh, or a new model that had an echo with the old Greek model that um, the whole idea of a republic um, coming into being uh, is the, the power of people finding people taking ideas and saying it can be different and what would it look like when it's different? Mm -hmm. What do you do? What do you do with the people who belong to the old model? Um, and I was asking, you know, I'm obviously researching this at the moment. And one of the questions I asked myself is, well, what happened in the United States during the Revolutionary War? What happened to the people who didn't want to be independent? Yes, and? And what percentage of the population didn't want to? And do you know that it's estimated that 20% were loyalists? Mm. Um, and, you know, they had a lot invested in the old system and they fought on the side of the crown and 20% uh, were definitely wanted change and the rest were kind of like well whatever <laughs> oh. <laughs> i bet you that's the same distribu distribution i'm sure would find something very similar i i mean and that, so that's just really important to notice that that happens but what happened to those people who didn't want things to change 
Well, a lot of them went back to England or moved to Canada. Hmm. And a few of them kind of managed to reintegrate, but there were people who said, I don't want that. And they actually, they actually didn't become part of the new world. There's a lot of them left. They sold what they owned or it was confiscated or they lost it or they, or they, or they were able to transform consciousness. I mean, in a way, where we are right now is we're bringing, and I'm mindful of time too, so we'll begin to wrap up here, but just as a, a point of synthesis here, the the idea of looking back into patterns in history and waiting for the opportune moment where the universe calls us in for a reckoning or calls mm. us in for mm. a redemption, mm. you're suggesting in April there is a particular conjunction that will be reminiscent of the signature energy of a time of great civil unrest and, and renewal of a new ethos or epoch or civilization. It could be. In uh, it could be. I mean, sometimes it's it's there is always a renewal on some level that changes the way we perceive things. OK, there's a kind of shock running through the system. And sometimes that that shock is an excitement and a wonder. Uh, and sometimes it's like the storming of the Bastille, which had a Jupiter-Uranus conjunction. You know, like uh, it, like you you can find political examples that you can find breakthroughs in technology with these conjunctions, but there's always a kind of breaking down of form. It becomes more radical. Like you, you mentioned George Floyd. During that event, there was um, a, a square between Saturn and Uranus that was beginning to form, which was this, this moment of massive, this, this massive injustice can no longer, this structure is inimical to human freedom and it can no longer continue, yes. right? And we have to dismantle those structures. But it became part of this very large process. And um, yesterday, the new French prime minister just gave uh, uh, his first speech. And um, at the end of it, he said, he said something like how proud he was to be part of a country that can elect an openly gay prime minister for the very first time. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, which is, that would not have been possible at any time in the last century. Yeah. It wouldn't even have been, no one would have believed it. Uh, and it's not that that's the important chart because, you know, like all the Americans are saying, oh, what do you think about the French are like, who cares? You know, they they, they have the le droit de d'indifférence. That means the right to be indifferent, mm -hmm. the right to not to not be bothered. Mm -hmm. So we can see things that are are happening, but it's a dangerous conjunction because it it also comes about a week after a very powerful solar eclipse that's visible through much of the United States. Uh, through much of the East Coast, the Southeast and uh, uh, New York State, um, it just moving, moving right up that pathway, Mexico, very mm. powerful uh, eclipse simultaneously. And then you asked me a question earlier about how do we keep from splitting? And 
Jupiter goes into Gemini at the very end of May. And Gemini is the twins, of course. It's about seeing the two sides of things, seeing black, white, seeing, but seeing the connections between opposites. That's really, Gemini consciousness like moves in that way. It sees difference and it reflects on how things are related or not related and how do you bring it in. So Jupiter and Gemini could increase division or it could increase our capacity to hold mm. multiple perspectives in our minds simultaneously, which is what we are asked to do right now. And it's very uncomfortable, but we don't like ambivalence. We don't yes. like ambiguity. But Pisces is about this. Gemini is about this. Mm. Uh, it's, it's sort of, keep, don't, Make a decision and close your mind around it. Yes. I think that's so important this year. So fundamental. It makes and, me think of what Robert Thurman, he he likes to define enlightenment as the ultimate ability uh, to, to endure cognitive dissonance. Mm. To hold multiplicity of perspectives without co collapsing. And I think that's, that's mm. what you're saying. I mean, that if you take one point of yeah. view it has a certain truth to it mm. and if, if you talk to someone who holds an alternative point of view it has some truth to it but they can't oftentimes it can't be reconciled there has to be a winner right mm. yeah there has to be a winner and there is a moment where a choice needs to be made right but but the, i think one of the things we haven't said today is it's not just Pluto changing signs. It's also in 2025, Uranus moves into Gemini. Neptune will move into Aries for the first time in 2026. So we're all the outer planets are changing signs over the next two years. So we're getting this big, big waft of Pluto and then Uranus steps into a new sign next year. So, so the consciousness, what's being called in our consciousness is so powerful right now from, again, the astrological perspective, for, for this perspective of this mythos. Right. I'm going to let you wrap up with some oracle advice. <laughs> now that you've laid the landscape of the year, you know, if you're speaking directly to the audience who are could be prone to paranoia and division <laughs> and you had you had words of advice speaking deep into their soul what would you like to say lynn uh it's just um i i, do, I just had this this um line from the I Ching pop into my head he sees his um neighbor as a pig <laughs> right like it's this that <laughs> not a word of wisdom but it's like just no noticing when suddenly our eyes turn the other person into something less than because maybe if we really saw the pig that would be a thing of beauty too mm. so even insulting people as animals maybe is 
uh, maybe it's a limit in our awareness, but actually seeing the other as less than, just noticing when that happens and not beating ourselves up because, you know, it's just not possible with every day at every moment not to have those moments of closure, of self-protection, but then remembering um, the other mm, is, is us, mm. might be us. <laughs> mm. uh, and and that that I think is the consciousness we're being asked to hold, and it's very and it's happening. It is happening. It's just not happening fast enough and to everybody. Mm. And even when it happens, even when you have a period like the the great revolutions, etc., like in France after the French Revolution, it became an empire, and then it went back to monarchy. And then it became a republic again. And then it became an empire again. And then it really did become a republic. So it doesn't happen all in one go. Okay, this shift in consciousness. So we're at the beginning of a, a great invitation in our possibility to see each other and honor that uniqueness in the other, bow to it. Beautiful. Well, we bow to you, Lynn. Thank you so much for your time, okay. for your insight. There was a special third eye directive of intuition those of you that are listening thank you so much for joining us on the wisdom keeper podcast on miles neal signing off from bali for those of you that would like to stay in touch with lynn bell and her work all the all the information of her upcoming lecture will be in the show notes thank you so much each and every one of you and all best wishes miles yeah it's great to talk to you blessings Thank you for listening to the Wisdom Keeper podcast. If you've enjoyed this presentation of sacred knowledge, kindly like, subscribe, review, and share our podcast and video series on YouTube with your network so that more people can benefit from these teachings and together we can create a brighter future. If you're interested in my online courses, our community membership, and pilgrimages I lead, consider visiting the Contemplative Studies program at gradualpath.com. Until we gather again, all best wishes.